This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast, where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, we review an article in the Harvard Business Review by Grant Harris on how to brief senior leadership. We find lots of lessons for the compliance professional and business executive and really anyone who needs to participate in a meeting. Hello, this is Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experience, history, business, literature, and politics to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today, we're going to go back to our series on presidents with a discussion about Woodrow Wilson, our 28th president. I have to admit, I knew a little bit about aspects of his career, but researching for this podcast revealed several different facets of his personality and his times. It made me understand a little better why he seems to inspire such strong feelings, both pro and con, and why he's important today. Today, we'll discuss his uh, career prior to assuming the presidency, um, and then then we'll discuss his presidency and then his very brief post-presidential career. Uh, Thomas Woodrow Wilson was the son of a Presbyterian minister born in 1856 in Staunton, Virginia. Family moved to Augusta, Georgia shortly afterwards, and some of his earliest memories are therefore the Civil War and Reconstruction periods in the very deep South. Although his father had been born in Ohio, he was an ardent advocate for the Southern way of life and an apologist for slavery. He inculcated in young Woodrow a belief both in the righteousness of the Confederate cause and in the evils of the United States Constitution and its government. He was educated primarily by his father and a few tutors, and at 16 he entered Davidson College in North Carolina but dropped out after a year. He entered the College of New Jersey, which was subsequently renamed Princeton, in 1875 and graduated in 1879. He entered law school at the University of Virginia, but again dropped out after a year, this time probably as a result of a failed love affair with his first cousin, very Southern Gothic of him. (laughs) He he continued to study law on his own, and in 1882, moved to Atlanta and passed the Georgia Bar. And He practiced law for less than a year, but grew bored and entered Johns Hopkins University as a graduate student in history and political science, earning a Ph.D. in 1886. Tom, I think his time in Baltimore is worth a a slight digression because it it reveals a lot about his political thought. Uh, Do you want to start talking about it? Um, So his uh, John Hopkins experience I found uh, particularly interesting. Um, If I could maybe uh, highlight something you brought up, which is 
his upbringing and indeed his uh, his father's uh, views on race, on slavery, on the lost cause, and on Reconstruction. Indeed, Wilson uh, would remark as an adult, the South was the only place in the world where nothing had to be explained to me. Um, And I hadn't fully appreciated what that upbringing meant to him and how that influenced him. My digression, Richard, is I believe the 1944 movie adaptation of Wilson, um, which I saw as as a youngster, and it heavily influenced me on my views of Wilson. I believe it won an Academy Award, but in as many movies, it was a great movie, but it wasn't really good history. And that's what I thought of for Woodrow Wilson for the longest time. And then researching for this podcast uh, really drove home to me um, that that view. Um, the... Um, his time at Johns Hopkins was critical, I think, to his development. He became a professor at Johns Hopkins, and his publication there of a book called Congressional Government really put him on the academic map. This book um, became a standard text uh, in many ways, and it, I don't want to say it was revolutionary, but he argued for the replacing of the American separation of powers um, of between Congress and the presidency, he really didn't speak to the judiciary with a British parliamentary system in which a prime minister would both lead the government and the majority in parliament. And as we move forward uh, through his professional career as president of Princeton and governor of New Jersey into his presidency, uh, it's, it struck me how many of those characteristics that he wrote about, he tried to put into place. And he uh, I was really surprised to see he he really tried to rule. Uh, I shouldn't say rule. I should say uh, <laughs> run the country as its elected president uh, in a much more parliamentary way as the prime minister. So I thought it was uh, really interesting to to look at that. Uh, but being put on the uh, academic map in um, I believe this was eighteen ninety seven. Um, was equally important then as it is today. And academics matter, uh, good writing and good books matter, and they can really uh, not only uh, inform a debate, but uh, can influence the author and the readers for many years to come. So I found that part really interesting. Uh, I just was not aware of his career at Johns Hopkins. And then uh, then he moved to Wesleyan. And I, and I note this because, one, my... Uh, roommate in law school went to Wesleyan, uh, but he coached football at Wesleyan. And the other well-known football coach who came out of uh, Wesleyan was Bill Belichick. So uh, interesting uh, data point there. And then he goes to Princeton, um, where he authors two more textbooks on uh, government that became standard texts for literally the next uh, 20 years, uh, maybe even into the 1930s. He went to Princeton in 1902 um, as a professor. Excuse me, uh, uh, he went to Princeton a little bit earlier and later became the president of Princeton. But I found these uh, these times as formative for Wilson's political philosophy and indeed his political thought and leadership as any other time. And and uh, I don't know what uh, what your thoughts might be. I, I just was not aware of the John Hopkins period at all. 
I wasn't either. And the uh, the other thing that came up that wasn't really mentioned in, in most of the uh, descriptions of it was that he originally published uh, Congressional Governance as, as a book. And then the faculty at Johns Hopkins later agreed to accept it as a dissertation. Um, I, I had thought it was the other way around, that it was a, a dissertation that he subsequently published. But it, it actually went the went backwards that way. And I guess they, they gave him the PhD because it had been such a success. But I, I do think it um, it shows his political thought and his distaste for the American system um, fairly clearly. Uh, when when he was at Princeton, I mean, you mentioned his he published several books on governance. He also published uh, a biography of George Washington and a five volume history of the United States, which has been subsequently mined by people for the uh, the quotes about the. Uh, the virtues of the Ku Klux Klan and uh, the uh, the correctness of the Southern view of slavery and secession. Um, I've not read the entire five volumes, so I can't tell how out of context those quotes are, but they've certainly been used to tar his reputation uh, in recent years. He becomes president of Princeton. What did you find uh, interesting or, or new for you in that uh, phase of his career, Richard? Well, I knew he had been president, but I wasn't aware quite how uh, influential he was as president. The first probably four years, he became president, I think, in 1902, and the first four years were sort of a honeymoon period. He'd been hired to basically reform the university. It was sort of a Southern gentleman's club up to that point. And so he, um, he changed the academic system, made it considerably more rigorous, he introduced the uh, preceptoral system where small groups of students meet with professors. Um, but then he ran, started running afoul of uh, politics in the university. He wanted to create a large graduate school in the middle of the campus. Um, he got his graduate school, but he didn't get it located where he was, But and he made a lot of enemies in the process. But it was when he attempted to overturn the uh, system of eating clubs, which are uh, social clubs, which are invitation only, and uh, and residential housing that he alienated everybody. Uh, students, alumni, faculty, trustees, they all disagreed with that. And so his uh, remaining you went five to an or six Ivy years school, were although basically not at treading the same water time. And, Wilson and was at Princeton. People. Did you see remnants of any of that uh, in your college experience or was the design of Yale is completely different. The design of Yale was, was completely different because it was completely revamped in the 30s into the residential college system. But my brother went to Princeton, and uh, they still had eating clubs, and they were still the center of the social life. And they, they were very defined groups. One would be more Southern. One would be more intellectual. It's just... Uh, it, it's interesting. It, it's not quite a fraternity system, but it's but it's very similar. The other thing about Princeton, and you touched on this, was this was in many ways the Southern Ivy League school, even though it was located in New Jersey. Um, a large number of Princeton graduates were officers for the Confederacy, and it maintained that Southern tradition uh, probably up until today with uh, the um, the dining clubs. But certainly at the time Wilson was there. And I, I've often wondered um, uh, what effect that had on him. Is it was just did it reinforce his vision of the South 
a very hierarchical system um, with uh, the elite uh, sort of running things, or uh, was it something different? Well, I think he felt very at home because of the southernness of the environment. But I think we also started to see some characteristics of his personality that show up later, um, specifically in the in the various fights he had. He, he eventually decided that it was better to be defeated than to settle for a compromise. Um, and we see that again and again in his later career. He seemed to seek out these quixotic... Uh, causes that he could go down to glorious defeat in. And I think we do see some some echoes of his father's training about the uh, the lost cause of the South in, in, in some of this. One of the characteristics that I have found about Wilson in this study was it seemed to me, particularly his last five years at Princeton, he became very prickly. Um. Uh, and he took offense easily, and that offense could be if you disagreed with him and if you were against his position. And uh, I think we saw that uh, in his later his later years as governor of New Jersey, but we particularly saw that in the presidency. And I've been trying to, to think of an example, and I'd originally thought of, of perhaps Richard Nixon, but then I, I really rejected that. Obviously, Nixon had an enemies list and, and targeted people. Uh, that he uh, thought were against him, but I didn't think he was prickly, um, easy to offense. Uh, I think he governed, he would work with others, uh, even if they disagreed with him. Really, the example that came to mind for me was John Adams, and it was really based based upon David McCullough's biography, uh, where I really did get the sense that Adams was very prickly, very difficult uh, uh, to work with and for. Uh, did, does that uh, resonate with with you, or do you do you have other uh, perhaps examples that may resonate a little bit more for you as president? Well, um, you know, I, I think that uh, Obama was was quite a prickly personality, um, and yeah, Wilson, though, I think combined prickliness with pettiness and vindictiveness and spitefulness to a degree that Adams may be a better comparison. Um, he, he kept grudges. Um, he, he kept score. Um, in fact, one of the quotes that I ran across from him was tolerance is an admirable intellectual gift, but it is of little worth in politics. And I think that kind of summed up his, his approach. It, uh, it was his way or the highway. So Richard, is his next step uh, was equally interesting. Uh, he becomes governor of New Jersey. Some of the readings we did indicated he was really a dark horse candidate, but uh, one of the pieces said that uh, he had always had his eye on politics and that he viewed the academic career leading to the presidency of Princeton as a stepping stone, although he was uh, step he believed he was should be headed to the Senate. Um, at this point in time, senators were elected by state legislators. Uh, the uh, uh, that had not been changed by constitutional amendment. Um, so I was. Uh, it seemed to be a little bit of a di- dichotomy, but I think he was clearly a dark horse candidate to become uh, the candidate for governor of New Jersey. He was nominated as a Democrat. He there had been four consecutive uh, Republican governors. Uh, um, New Jersey was viewed as, particularly the Democrats were viewed as uh, very corrupt. 
because of party bosses. I think that's also well known for New Jersey uh, at that time as well. So he really uh, tried to um, to run on the outside, and there was a, a great quote, um, which I think is a little fastidious, but it said, quote, it came to me unsought, ununanimously, uh, unanimously, and without pledges to anybody about anything. And I think he was trying to uh, set himself apart. I'm not sure it, it came to him unsought, um, but uh, that seemed to be the way that he garnered the uh, nomination. And then he was elected, and he did engage in some significant reforms for the state of New Jersey. He had um, uh, several pieces of legislation he was able to get through, and he turned his back on the party bosses, and even the party bosses um, who were very powerful, such as the then-sitting U.S. senator. So we saw a little bit, I think, of not only his leadership style, but a portending of some of the things he wanted to do as president when he was governor of New Jersey. What what might have struck you about that that time of his professional career? Well, the um, there are several references in, in his writings to the fact that he actually uh, practiced law with a view of entering politics. So I think his his eye was on politics pretty much all of his life, um, and this was his first chance to get into it. Um, he was apparently looking for a graceful way out of Princeton at that point, since he uh, he'd suffered some a series of defeats uh, with both the faculty and the trustees. It turns out, of course, that his fight against the privileged Ivy League sold very well with the with the voters. <laughs> so, um, Can we say it's still working? I think so. So, um, but anyway, so yeah, so they the Democrats. Uh, saw him as someone who had who was untainted by the by the boss system, but they also gravely miscalculated when they thought they could easily manipulate him. And I've I've been looking for it, but I couldn't ever find it again. But I I remember reading a quote from him once that uh someone was saying, you know, this I don't really think you can handle the politics of being governor. And he said, you've never been at a Princeton faculty meeting. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and he was absolutely correct. He was absolutely correct. The, uh, the old saying about the fights are so vicious because the stakes are so small. But uh, but anyway, so yeah, they they gravely miscalculated, and he was able to leverage that um, into making some significant reforms in New Jersey. And uh, and then of course he uh, the Democrats sought him for the uh, 1912 campaign. So the 1912 campaign was, uh, we've touched on this in prior podcasts about both Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft, but it was one of the most fascinating campaigns in United States history. But once again, Wilson was a dark horse candidate. And uh, one of the scenes that I still remember from the 1944 biography was when uh, his supporters were able to coalesce and create a majority and they had about a, an hour and a half or two hour parade on the floor of the convention, which is something they used to do to try to drum up support. And uh, his campaign slogan was the pride of Princeton. Um, and there there was some validity in that. He truly was a dark horse candidate. Uh, I think it was the 15th or 20th ballot before he was able to um, begin to move up. But there were two key um, elements that, uh, put him in the nominee seat. The first was William Jennings Bryant. 
and one of the great um, characters of American history, nominated for presidency three times, became Wilson's secretary of state. Uh, but uh, Brian threw his support to Wilson. The second thing was, um, I probably should have named this first, was Tammany Hall. Uh, and Tammany Hall backed one of Wilson's opponents. That's what caused Bryant, who announced he would not back anyone who Tammany Hall backed. So Williams Jennings Bryant threw his support to Wilson and not being the Tammany Hall candidate uh, indicated to many in the convention that he was not the party boss candidate. Uh, and that meant something uh, at that point in time, because this, of course, was uh, the, high, the high point of populism in the United States, or at least that phase of populism. Uh, so Wilson was able to uh, garner that support and claim the mantle of populism, even with uh, Teddy Roosevelt running in the in the Bull Moose Party. Yeah, although the um, you know it, it is worth noting that uh, Wilson won with with only forty two percent of the popular vote, um, as well as Roosevelt and Taft, uh, Debs, Eugene Debs, the socialist, uh, actually won six percent of the popular vote, um, which I think. You know, is in, is indicative of how fragmented the the country was at the time. Um, we seem to think that our own times are unique and and uh, being fragmented and along very rigid lines, but it's really not anything particularly new. There were two other things that I wanted to raise, Richard, uh, about his campaign platform. Um, he he uh, campaigned on something called the New Freedom Platform, and two of the major planks were busting up the trust i.e. antitrust, and second was lowering of tariffs. Lowering of tariffs is not something we talk about much these days because, number one, our tax structure has changed with the uh, in advent of the personal income tax. But the more I thought about it, uh, the past administration used tariffs uh, much more aggressively, um, and the impact of tariffs uh, and trade sanctions in 2020 or 2016 to 2020, impacted the American consumer. Well, the tariffs in 1912 impacted the American consumer. And so to your point, once again, we see there's really nothing new in American politics or American political debate. We may call it a little bit different. We we certainly don't talk about lowering tariffs now, but the trade sanctions put in place by the now, uh, as we're recording this, still current administration, really increased the tariff prices essentially on uh, many American consumers and American manufacturing companies. And we are now in a new phase of antitrust uh, with uh, the big tech companies. One uh, action has been filed, and there may be others under the Biden administration, or there may be a a change in the laws. So uh, once again, we see uh, that issue still. And of course, the the third part of the new freedom platform was the Federal Reserve System, Um, which was created in, in 1913 um, in order to reform the banking system, which, you know, again, remains a, uh, remains a hot-button issue with, with a fair number of people. Richard, so. there's, there's one thing that we have not discussed in this phase of Wilson's career that we both think is extraordinarily important as a leadership issue, and that's health. You want to talk a little bit about what, what happened to him or what speculated to happen to him and how that may uh, presage certain things in uh, his uh, presidential term? Well, um, it appears that he probably had a minor stroke while he was president of Princeton. Um, 
he began to go, he'd always had weak eyesight, but he apparently began to go blind in one eye. The stroke may have changed his personality to make him even pricklier. Um, I'm, I'm not convinced of that, but it uh, certainly it, his health became a concern from, from there on out. And, um, you know, it may well have, have changed his personality somewhat. You know, he, he, he was, his, his Presbyterian faith was always very strong, too, and the, with the Presbyterian belief in predestination, um, I think he was always inclined to be cert, certain of his own uh, rectitude, but uh, I think that may have been an issue. And that's something that, uh, with age of our uh, now incoming president— And our congressional leadership— and our congressional leadership and our current president, I, I think a lot about that. Uh, and I hadn't thought about it really in terms of a leadership issue. Health is a leadership issue. I thought about it as sort of a new blood or different ideas uh, or a path to, to leadership for some of the younger congressional representatives or those who might seek higher office, uh, such as the presidency. But here it really drove home uh, health. And, you know, President Trump didn't want anyone to know about his health conditions. Um, do we need to know? Do we have a right to know the health of our president? Um, is that Should that be public knowledge? But here, uh, it clearly was a critical issue, and um, I'm not sure I have an answer to that, but it's, it's... And if we take that to the boardroom, you know, Steve Jobs would probably be the best example, uh, still leading Apple while having stage four cancer, uh, was was he still capable at that point? Um, do stakeholders or shareholders have the right to know about the physical health of leaders, uh, their their CEOs, their C-suite executives? Is that something that we need to take into account more? And has that even changed now in view of the coronavirus health crisis? Well, I think it's always been a difficult balancing test, Um you know, I feel the same about the financial disclosures, and they're, they're they always try to balance that with extremely vague financial disclosures, and uh, and the health disclosures are a, are a serious privacy issue. Um, but at some point, I, I do think that uh, they should be disclosed. Uh, we'll we'll talk about this a lot more in the next podcast um, because it became very much an issue during his second term as president. Um, and I think you're right. I think it's it's an issue today. Richard, so. I really enjoyed particularly studying this phase of his career. I, I had studied the, his presidency and particularly the Treaty of Versailles and the 14 points in depth, but I hadn't really studied this part. There was, uh, I have to say that the whole Southern upbringing and his, uh, his original book uh, were not things I was very uh, aware of at all. And I think those really either shaped and formed his views literally for the rest of his life or uh, really were guideposts for him on how he governed going forward? Well, I I think they definitely were. And I I think his admiration for a a strong executive uh, system, um, one of the articles we read said that uh, by 1908, Wilson had become convinced that constitutional change was no longer necessary for a president to simply assume greater power. Um, and he certainly showed that when he became president. But uh, no, I, I found it very interesting. And I do think that it uh, we're going to see echoes of it uh, throughout his career. 
Well, thank you for listening. And until next time, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox with 12 O'Clock High. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. Also, check out the uh, article that the podcast is uh, uh, based upon in the show notes. Please join us again for our next episode where uh, Richard Lummis and I will take another look at leadership. 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.